0: afternoon. I'd like to welcome to our Supreme Court some visitors from the UNC School of Law. Uh, we have Professor Donna Nixon and I think Rebecca Howell, Director of International Programs. Uh, we have um, exchange students from Germany and from Spain, so welcome. Our next case is State versus Walker, and we will hear from the appellate.
1: May it please the court my name is Katie Dickinson Schultz I'm an assistant appellate public defender and I represent mr. Walker on appeal for purposes of oral argument I was only going to talk about issue one unless the court would prefer otherwise and I'd like to save seven minutes for rebuttal please mr. Walker filed a pro se mar he filed uh, attached an affidavit and he filed a memorandum of law in support of his mar alleging among other things an IAC claim based on his trial attorney's failures to properly advise and honor his wish to testify an appellate IAC claim based on his appellate's attorney's failure to raise a meritorious issue on appeal. The trial court summarily denied both of these claims, concluding they only raised questions of law. Then when it got to the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals acknowledged that there was a factual dispute but held that Mr. Walker was not entitled to a hearing because the court was not, quote, persuaded by his claims. The trial court was fundamentally wrong when it didn't recognize that Mr. Walker's MAR materials raised a disputed issue of fact requiring a hearing. The Court of Appeals was wrong by acknowledging that there was a factual dispute, but making a credibility determination on the materials alone without a hearing. All Mr. Walker is asking for is an evidentiary hearing a hearing he is entitled to based on our statutes and case law from this court. When deciding whether to grant Mr. Walker an evidentiary hearing, our statutes in this court have been clear. If the MAR and supporting documentation raise a disputed issue of fact that, if true, would entitle to him to some relief, and there is some evidentiary support for that, there must be a hearing. Some doesn't mean overwhelming, it doesn't mean substantial, it doesn't, require a show, it doesn't require Mr. Walker to show that he would ultimately prevail on he, his claims. But what a reviewing court can't do is make facts up that, not, that are not in the record in order to deny someone a hearing, that's something that this court pointed out in Todd, that you, the court a reviewing court can't hypothesize facts. If more factual development is needed, then there must be an evidentiary hearing. This court has also been clear that what a reviewing court can't do also is make a determination as to who is telling the truth on the MAR pleadings alone if more factual development is needed based on disputed issues of fact. Um, But if the defendant's motion and supporting materials require resolution of disputed facts, there must be an evidentiary hearing. And here Mr. Walker presented the reviewing court with a question of fact uh, that it had to resolve, whether his attorneys were properly advising him about his right to testify and whether they honored his desire to testify. In his MAR, his affidavit and his memorandum of law, Mr. Walker repeatedly says, I wanted to testify, my attorneys knew I wanted to testify, they weren't (coughs) properly advising me, and ultimately I wasn't allowed to testify because they didn't call me to the stand. He stated his claims with particularity enough to establish a prima facie case of the violation of his Sixth Amendment right to decide whether to testify and to be properly advised about his right to testify uh, based on his attorney's uh, failure to act professionally, ethically, or effectively. And it isn't clear from his MAR materials exactly what those conversations were or how it came to be that this all happened, that he ultimately did not testify. Uh, But these facts would have to be further developed at a factual, um, excuse me, at an evidentiary hearing. The Court of Appeals went beyond Mr. Walker's materials, concluding that, quote, the record didn't support his contentions and that because Mr. Walker's argument hinged on believing his allegations, Um, he didn't get a hearing. Um, There's several problems with this. First, Mr. Walker's intention to testify, his desire to testify, the fact that he was not being properly advised, was all established by his MAR materials, including the affidavit he attached to his MAR, which under 15A, 1420B is considered documentary evidence of his allegations. Um, these I mid-
2: apologize if you're gonna get there, but what's the legal significance of the fact that he waited um, nearly 20 years to raise the issue that he'd not been allowed to testify? I mean, doesn't that, I, I could imagine a situation, so if I agreed with you and yes. thought there should be a hearing that the, his defense counsel is gonna be in a tough position sure. asking what, you know, being asked what exactly he said to someone 20 years ago. Right, right. Um, So So what is the legal significance of that? I
1: don't think it has any bearing on whether he gets the evidentiary hearing. You know, I I don't, I can't think um, justice off the top of my head of when there has been this big of a gap, but I know that it isn't uncommon to see gaps of five to 10 years um, that it takes somebody to do an MAR. I know at the time of trial, Mr. Walker's attorneys worked at Um, a big law firm in Raleigh, and I'm so sorry, I can't remember the name of it, but I know that when I spoke to his trial attorney, they kept all the records of the trial. So it's not like there wouldn't be anything that the attorney could pull from to say refresh his memory. Um, Second, the court held that whether Mr. Walker gets a hearing hinges on his believability That's not the test. Whether Mr. Walker gets a hearing hinges on whether his materials created a disputed issue of fact that had to be resolved by uh, an evidentiary hearing. Believability only happens after there's been an evidentiary hearing and when there's been further factual development of all his claims. Uh, But this court has been clear that a reviewing court can't make that credibility determination and conclude who's telling the truth and who wins based on the MAR pleadings alone. For example, in McHone, uh, this court had all the factual dispute information before it. It had the defense counsel's affidavit regarding whether it had been properly served with a proposed order. It had an affidavit from the state saying, no, we served served the defense counsel. There was no improper communication. This court was very clear. This is not the forum to make that determination. That has to be made below. the same thing happened in um, this court's cases of Todd and Benitez, where there the court of appeals sort of went the other way and said, based on the MAR pleadings, we think the defendant is entitled to relief without an evidentiary hearing. Um, you know, convict uh, You know, uh, vacated the convictions. And again, this court stepped in and said, no, no, no. If there are disputed issues of fact, the reviewing court doesn't get to resolve those until there has been further factual development at a hearing and somebody can make a determination about who's telling the truth on those disputed facts. Uh, furthermore, contrary to the Court of Appeals opinion, the record doesn't contradict Mr. Walker's claims. It supports it. Uh, first of all, Mr. Walker didn't testify at trial. Um, second, at the, the only indication, that anybody was talking about whether Mr. Walker would testify it happened right at the beginning of trial. This happened before Vaudier, and his attorneys put on the record: um, quote, We have not decided whether Mr. Walker would testify. Just for purposes of semantics, you know, only Mr. Walker makes that decision, but that, that's just that's neither here nor there. After that, there was no further discussions between the trial court and Mr. Walker the trial court Mr. Walker's t- attorneys about whether he was gonna testify, whether he was gonna waive his tes- right to testify, um, whether um, there were things coming up about the discussions going on behind the scene about whether he was gonna testify based on his attorney's advice. But there was nothing on the record establishing that he had been properly advised, nor was there anything establishing that he did not want to testify. These gaps in the record as to What happened between the beginning of trial when his attorney said we haven't decided and the end where he ultimately wasn't called and didn't testify would have to be established at an evidentiary hearing. But because Mr. Walker's MAR raised disputed issues of fact as to whether he was being properly advised and whether he was listening, uh, his attorneys were listening when he says I wanted to testify, he was entitled to further substantiate those claims at a hearing. Mr. Walker also alleged facts showing that his attorney's deficient performance prejudiced him. First of all, Mr. Walker's testimony would have gone to the only disputed issue at trial. There had been a Harbison admission, so the only thing left to decide for the jury was whether he was guilty of first or second degree murder, whether he killed Stephanie with premeditation, deliberation, and specific intent to kill. Mr. Walker could have spoken directly to that. Because of this Harbison issue, The issues for the jury to to decide had been so narrowed that Mr. Walker became perhaps the most important witness to testify about all this. Second, there was little risk to Mr. Walker taking the stand. Certainly, one of the things that an attorney is gonna advise a client about, and one of the reasons a client may not, or a defendant may get up and decide not to testify, is are you opening yourself up to being impeached by your prior convictions, but two, problematic convictions of Mr. Walker's came in under Rule 404B. These were two prior assaults on the victim in this case. Um, once those came in, the risk to Mr. Walker testifying was very little, um, and especially in most, unlike most defendants' positions where that stuff had not come in, and they think, well, I, these things are only gonna come in if I get up on the stand and testify. Third, there were inconsistencies in the eyewitness testimony. Um, Stephanie's uncle testified at trial. He was there the night of the incident. According to his trial testimony, um, Mr. Walker and Stephanie had been sitting out in Stephanie's car in the driveway outside of her home. Um, They got out of the car together, started walking up to the home together. Uh, Mr. Walker wanted to come in. Stephanie said, no, you can't come in, shut the door and at that point, according to the uncle's trial testimony, Mr. Walker barged in, kicked in the door, he told Stephanie, quote, now you're gonna get fucked up, shot her a couple times, turned away, started walking away, came back and shot her a few more times. That is a very different story than what he told responding officers the night of the incident. Then he told officers that Stephanie and Mr. Walker walked into the home together and it was only after Mr. Walker asked to use the restroom and Stephanie said no that he shot her. But there were no threats. There was no barging in. There was no, um, you know, shooting, coming back and shooting some more. And the difference for the jury in those two different versions could be the difference between first and second degree murder. Mr. Walker could have testified as to what the version of events that actually happened. Um, And if you look at the statements uh, Mr. Walker made to Dr. Rogers, they are consistent with the latter testimony. Um, Not that he barged in and said this stuff, but that he only shot her after she wouldn't let him use the restroom. Fourth, Mr. Walker's testimony could have filled in the gaps in Dr. Rogers' testimony, as I talked a lot about in issue two. Dr. Rogers wasn't allowed to talk about that Mr. Walker lacked the capacity to form uh, specific intent to kill. Um, So for purposes of trial, that issue was still on the table. Mr. Walker could have spoken directly to that and said what was or not going through his mind that night. And finally, the jury struggled with what verdict to return. Even though there had been a Harbison admission, you know, the jury deliberated for over a day. They asked to see um, the elements of the first degree, uh, of of first degree murder. And all this suggests that a first degree murder conviction certainly was not just a slam dunk for the prosecution. But for IAC in this context, in order to trigger the need for a hearing, Mr.
3: Counsel, just one question about that. Do we know exactly what your client would have testified to if he... It got on the stand.
1: I don't know if we can say we know exactly. We know what he told Dr. Rogers. We know. Um,
3: my question is, yeah. In terms of the, you know, the but for portion of the Strickland test. Yes. We need to know what the evidence would have been. So, some sort of affidavit or some statement. If I had been able to testify, I would have. So that we can answer some of the questions. Yes. That you, you know, you're you're sort of describing them in a way that's almost like speculating this could have happened and right. we're looking at, is there a reasonable probability that you know, but for the fact that testimony wasn't admitted. Outcome. Yeah, and so how, can we use the speculation or do we need to know what was he prepared to testify at that time?
1: Well, we know that he was not going to get up on the stand and deny he did this. I mean, there had already been the Harbison admission. We know what he told Dr. Rogers um, that he shot and killed her without thinking. Um, so, I think that that forecasts what his evidence would be. I think if you look at his affidavit, there are times he talks about um, how what uh, Stephanie's uncle said it true was not what happened. Um, that, that he points to the idea that there were conflicting stories and seems to suggest that he could have resolved that. So to me, that, that, that indicates that he would be testifying Um, that what her uncle said to officers denied a question is more consistent with what he testified. We don't know his exact words, but I do think that um, we can tell from his affidavit and statements made to other people what he would have said. I do know he confessed to this crime. Um, The trial testimony on that was very limited. Um, it was just an officer who said, yeah, Mr. Walker said he shot and killed his girlfriend. I don't know how many details actually got into trial, but I do think there is enough to know that it would be a lot more consistent with what he was telling Dr. Rogers happened.
3: Okay, if you file an MAR, mm-hmm. and you've plainly satisfied the uh, evidentiary requirements that to require an evidentiary hearing, mm-hmm. but it's also, apparent from the face of the MAR that you won't satisfy the second prong of Strickland. Do you need to have the evidentiary hearing, or can the court just say?
1: No, you don't get it. Yeah. Um, so no, I, a, I, 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 I'm i sorry. Go is it a problem
3: for you that we don't really have enough, like, if you're looking at if you're imagining it, that phase f- 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 of it to figure out what to have the evidentiary hearing, that we just really don't know what exactly your client would have said on the stand, so we can't really do the can't conclude that it would be prejudicial right or are you saying maybe at the evidentiary hearing he would have explained what he was you know we, we would know that later I, I'm just trying to figure that out
1: I do I think I think that it is it is even though it's not a hundred percent clear exactly what he would have said that there's a disputed issue of fact as to um, whether he would have said enough to meet that second Second prong of Strickland, and I think because of that, there has to be an evidentiary hearing, and that's certainly something that a reviewing court at an evidentiary hearing is going to make a determination on. Um, you know, the trial, the the reviewing court is going to want to know, you know, not only what what it, what were your conversations, if any, about the first prong, but also if you would have testified, what would you have said, and the reviewing court at the evidentiary hearing would be like, this isn't enough to meet that second prong. But I don't think the appropriate remedy, when we don't know exactly what he would say, but we have an indication, would be to summarily deny it. If that answers your question, um, let me just. Find so, for IAC in this context, the trigger the need for a hearing. Mr. Walker needed to allege enough facts in his MA on supporting documentation that created a disputed issue of fact as to whether he was being properly advised and whether his attorneys were listening when he said, I want to testify, he did that. Nothing in the record contradicted his claim. Um, The general discussions in the record that showed up that was discussing discussing other things um, did not speak to whether Mr. Walker was being properly advised about his right to testify or whether he wanted to testify. The trial court was obligated to hold a hearing to resolve these disputed issues of fact. Um, both the trial court and the Court of Appeals got it wrong, but for entirely different reasons. Um, the the trial court's order on Mr. Walker's MAR was fundamentally flawed. The trial court concluded that the MAR only raised questions of law. No one agrees with that. Certainly not Mr. Walker. Um, I, the state doesn't agree with that. I mean, the gist of a lot of the state's argument is this idea of, no, we can... To find places in the record that show that Mr. Walker didn't want to testify. He was being properly advised. This is a whole a nothing burger, right? But the idea is the state's argument shows there is a disputed issue of fact with regard to what happened. Um, and the Court of Appeals did not think that this was purely a question of law. The Court of Appeals just de- decided to make a determination based on persuasion. Uh, The trial court also held that Mr. Walker was barred because he could have raised all those claims on direct appeal. I mean, clearly with the appellate IAC claim, I I don't think that would normally happen. Um, And with regard to the trial counsel IAC claim, the record was not fully developed enough below for him to raise this on direct appeal. The record was basically indicated that at the beginning of trial, Mr. Walker hadn't decided after that, there was no further discussion. So you need his MAR and his affidavit and supporting documentation in conjunction with the record in order to show a need for a hearing under for IAC, for his height. So,
0: so going forward, are we going to require our trial courts to inquire of every defendant? Uh, have you been properly advised by your counsel that you have the right to testify, and are you freely waiving that right?
1: I mean, normally they do. Um, normally, there is the colloquy that's held at the end of, um, if, the, if, if the end of defense evidence, if they put it on, that says, "Are you going to? You understand? You have the right to testify." Where the trial court engages in that, um, so I don't think that would be a new requirement. Um, now, it's was not that
0: true. Twenty years ago,
1: I believe it was. Yes, I. I well. I, I believe so. I can't, I can't, I don't know when that first started. I'd have to go back and look in my brief. I know I cite the case where that it is talked about. I'll have to look at the year. But I think that that would help ensure to make sure that if a defendant is not going to testify, that that came after a proper consultation with, with uh, his attorneys and base, and, and a defendant would know that that was his decision to make a loan. Um, The Court of Appeals acknowledged that there was a factual dispute, but held that uh, Mr. Walker's argument hinged on presumption of believing his intention and that it wasn't persuaded. Again, um, uh, whether, uh, under this court's decision in in McHone, when you have MAR allegations and you have documentary, documentary support for those allegations, those are supposed to be treated as true when deciding whether somebody's entitled to a hearing. Um, second, the court noted that because he didn't get a hearing because the court wasn't persuaded. That means that the court stepped in, looked at what the MAR said, and made a credibility determination on its own that Mr. Walker just wasn't telling the truth, that these things didn't happen making those credibility determinations on the filings alone without without having all the necessary facts to do so is exactly what this court has said uh, the Court of Appeals could not do in Todd and Benitez. Um, And to deny Mr. Walker his evidentiary hearing based on these uh, unrelated discussions that the court pointed to would mean that the court would be assuming facts into evidence. That because he did a Harbison colloquy because he said he had talked to his attorneys about that, that necessarily means that he had been talking to his attorneys about, you know, testifying. And a reviewing court cannot do that. Um, you, When there are more facts that need to be developed, the evidentiary hearing is the place you do that, but you don't deny a hearing because more facts are needed. Um, Third, it was almost as if the Court of Appeals was requiring Mr. Walker to show he would absolutely prevail on his IEC claim. Again, that's not the test. You know, At the hearing is where he would have to prove uh, by a preponderance of the evidence that these things happened or didn't happen. Um, But he doesn't have to show he would outright win at the beginning in order to get a hearing. Mr. Walker's MAR materials were specific about what he was alleging. He was specific that he wanted to testify, that he wasn't allowed, and that he hadn't been properly advised. And he was entitled to a hearing. Um, if the court has no further questions. I, I do have
2: a okay. question, thank you. Um, and I am struggling to be clear about what the limiting principle would be here. Um, and by that I mean, um, it, it, was there some additional evidence that? T- sort of takes this case, that, that he, that exists in this case, that takes it out of the realm of, you know, anyone who was um, convicted after a trial and didn't testify in their trial and didn't have the colloquy with the court in which they said, yes, I knowingly waived my right to take the stand. What, what separates this case from every other person in those circumstances being entitled to a hearing on a MAR?
1: I think... One thing is that his attorneys had put on the record at the beginning of the trial that he had not decided. I think it's different um, that, that indicates that he had not necessarily foreclosed on the possibility. Um, as far as whether this would like open the floodgates of MAR litigation, I just don't think it has. I haven't found any um, MAR, litigation in this state that has to do with a situation like this, where a defendant who didn't testify is saying that these things happened. Um, and and is, it, is it possible that in this
2: case, because his test, because the issues were so narrow for the jury to decide, uh-huh. and his testimony um, b- based on what he had said to the doctor, um, th- his testimony would shed light on the central issue that the jury had to decide, that in many other cases, The defendant's own testimony would not have that, could not have that
1: exculpatory impact for the jury? Absolutely. I mean, Mr. Walker never denied that he had not shot and killed Stephanie. It was only, you know, whether he committed first degree murder when he did it or committed second degree murder. Um, So I think Mr. Walker is in a unique position that not only was his right to testify not foreclosed in the beginning, nor was that trial court colloquy done to make sure he knew what was going on and the trial court could check to make sure he understood what he was waiving. But the, 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 the fact that he had admitted to shooting and killing her meant that the jury only had to decide a very limited number of things here. So I think he is in a very different position than most other defendants.
0: Thank you, Council. We'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon, Mr. Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the North Carolina Supreme Court. My name is Ben Zaney. I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice and I represent the state in this matter. In this case, it was proper for the MAR court to summarily deny defendant's MAR. Allen and our, this court's jurisprudence and Allen and our other statutes entitle uh, MAR courts to summarily deny claims which are unsupported or irrelevant. Here, defendant's claims, both of them, were IAC claims. Under Strickland, defendant must show prejudice. Prejudice is a reasonable probability of a different outcome had deficient performance not occurred. Because defendant here cannot show prejudice as to either IAC issue, the the summary denial of his MAR was proper. I'll take each of these issues in turn, starting with the first. Defendant first alleged IAC at trial regarding his right to testify. Here, defendant in his MAR makes, primarily he makes conclusory statements. Uh, Conclusory statements about what his testimony would have accomplished without saying exactly what that testimony would have been and uh, effectively defendant here is asking this court to speculate as to what his testimony would have been. I was jotting down some of the things that my, my friend on the other side was saying and, and she said things like he could have testified, he could have spoken to, uh, not 100% clear what he would have said, whether he, um, whether he would have said enough is an issue of fact, seems to suggest, his, t- his MAR indicates, but none of that is anything more than speculation there's nothing in the MAR, or there's very little in the MAR suggesting specific testimony. The aspects of his MAR and his MAR affidavit that suggests specific testimony are either testimony that's irrelevant to the central issue in front of the jury or uh, would be otherwise unadmissible or would have undermined his own case. Under any of these circumstances- So do you think we should, that should be a, a
3: legal principle that we create that in filing a motion for appropriate relief, if you're making this sort of argument, you have to spell out exactly what testimony you would have given that you weren't able to, in order to, somewhat like how we would require an offer of proof or some you know, other mechanism to put into the record exactly what the evidence that never made it in would be. Do you think we need it to be that strict or is it just it has to be clear from the MAR that it would have been prejudicial? Here, for example, you can infer to some extent what the testimony would be from various other
0: facts in the record. Your Honor, I don't think that, to answer your question, I don't think that this court would be creating a rule to say that you have to be specific in your MAR. I think that that is how this court has interpreted it in the past. That's that's at least my reading of Allen and and McCone in other cases. I don't think that, um, I don't think, I think in this case, under these facts, defendant is asking this court to infer what he would have said rather than him outright saying it in his MAR. Uh, and, I mean, under that, under the basically the guise of defendant maybe could have said this almost any MAR you know stuff could be read between the lines or a defendant could be conceptual a court could conceptualize how a defendant might have said something. There's a million things that a defendant could testify to, and many of them are, might be beneficial, many of them might not be. But what matters is what defendant actually puts in his MAR. His MAR has to be has to make a claim that, uh, if true, would entitle him to relief. Uh, and here, because his claim about what he would have testified to is so nonspecific uh, that doesn't entitle him to pr- relief. A uh, court, a trial, or MAR court addressing that MAR could as, a, as a, just a question of law decide that he's not entitled to relief on this, he doesn't show prejudice based on this allegation. Uh, and so just to, to highlight some of the specifics, um, you know, again, defendant talked about um, the inconsistencies in the, the statements that the victim's brother made um, in fact, he said in his MAR affidavit, to the to the extent that I'm I'm trying to quote it as best I can, my testimony had I testified based off the the victim's brother's statements and testimony would have cast reasonable doubt in the jury's mind whether he was an eyewitness. There's no way he could have been an eyewitness according to his statements and testimony. And so it seems that defendant wanted to testify about. The victim's brother's prior statements, which would be an inadmissible hearsay. Just as an example of, to the extent that that's a specific thing that the, the defendant offers he might have testified about, that testimony would have been inadmissible. Um, defendant also talks about uh, what other witnesses, Wayne Campbell and Brenda Hilton, would have testified to. Um, defendant in her, or in defendant counsel's reply brief, um, indicated that Mr. Campbell's testimony didn't speak to defendant's mindset. I, I think both parties can agree that. that the testimony that he wanted to make on those witnesses all had to do with things occurring after the murder, not things that had to do with his mindset at the time of the murder. And then finally, to the extent that I've suggested that defendant would, t- his testimony would undermine um, his case, uh, he he, suge- he seems to suggest um, that he would testify that the victim's young daughter could not have been an eyewitness to the murder like she's testified to at a trial. Uh, and that's particularly problematic for him because his expert testified, in part, that, uh, that that's something that the defendant had told her, that uh, the next thing that he remembers after the murder, clearly, is the kids being there. That's something that he, he had told her. So if defendant is gonna get up and say that he didn't kill the victim in front of her children, but he has told his expert psychologist that he did, then the jury is at a, at a at a point where they have to believe either one or the other, both of which have been offered by defendant. Uh, and so, again, that, when I say that he, that would undermine his own case, that's what I'm referring to specifically. Additionally, you have the unique circumstance here where defendants account. This is not a case where defendants account of what happened is not before the jury. Defendants expert psychologist was entitled or was al- allowed to testify at length to not just what happened in the moments leading up to the murder and what was going through defendant's mind, um, and not just to his medical condition and to her diagnosis of him, but also to things like his upbringing, his schooling, his family relationships, his relationship with the victim, his relationship with other state's witnesses. Her testimony was lengthy and and comprehensive, and so again, uh, this is not a case where that information was wholly not before the jury. Uh, That is something again, that the risk there was that if defendant testified, he would contradict one of the many things that he told her, not, um, not the risk that he would uh, simply remain silent. So, um, and additionally, to the extent that defendant talks about prior convictions, um, I don't think that the record makes clear that the two convictions that were admitted were all of defendant's prior convictions. Indeed, the record indicates that the state offered a prior conviction worksheet or, or form of some sort, prior conviction history as part of what they were offering under 404B and that defendant objected to it. Um, so I, I think that the record could be interpreted to say that there may have been more convictions that could have been offered had he actually testified. Uh, but again, I, I will concede that that's, that's reading between the lines of the record. That's on page transcript page 1129. So as to this issue, essentially, uh, defendant cannot show prejudice um, here, and because he cannot show prejudice, the MAR court did not err in summarily denying his uh, MAR as to this first issue. Unless there are any questions as to this, I'd like to move on to the second issue. So defendant's second issue was IAC on appeal, and again, defendant cannot show prejudice. Uh, Here he alleges that his appellate counsel failed to raise a particular issue regarding the trial court's limitation on his uh, expert's testimony. Because that issue is not meritorious, then he cannot succeed. Uh, He could not show that he would have gotten a different outcome on appeal. uh, And so, therefore, again, he cannot succeed here. The trial court did not abuse its discretion in limiting the expert testimony. um, And so, there's no prejudice. And here, Boyd, this court's decision in Boyd is what controls. um, In Boyd, this court uh, indicated that a trial court may limit an expert's testimony to avoid confusion. among other things, as in particular it noted that in Boyd, the trial court had allowed the expert to use other terminology to say the same thing as what the trial court had limited them from saying. And so here, that's what you have. I mean, the trial court allowed testimony, although it's, I think it's fair to say the trial court limited the expert's testimony in terms of specific words, it did not limit it in terms of message, in terms of the material message. Um, you have the trial court allowing Dr. Rogers to testify at length, Uh, in response to numerous questions. uh, For example, Dr. Rogers testified that in her view, because of defendant's anger, he was not able to reflect on his actions in any meaningful way. Um, She testified that uh, he had been experiencing anger attacks and again, she believed it contributed to what happened and it prevented him from reflecting in any meaningful way. When he was in the midst of one of these anger attacks, as she believes he was, one is not able to make plans or think in any significant way. and she goes on and on about how he would, in her opinion, she was in he was in the midst of an anger attack. Um, it was his under, her understanding that he quit thinking, he was vulnerable to being emotionally out of control, was vulnerable to these anger attacks, and, and, and again says, would not have behaved in that manner particularly given that her children were present. Um, and then at the end of all her testimony, she agreed with defense counsel that she was still of the opinion that defendant's actions on that night because of his medical condition, May have contributed to an anger attack and not allowed him to reflect on his actions in any meaningful way. So again, all of that is just specific intent to kill, premeditation, and deliberation, in in plainer language. Uh, and so, based on that, the trial cor- or the trial court's limitations on that expert testimony did not uh, materially alter the evidence that the jury heard and the evidence that the jury decided this case on, because. Um, because of that, there's no prejudice, and because there's no prejudice, there's no merit to his claim on, in his MAR, and so the MAR court is entitled to summarily deny that claim. And then just as an additional aside on the second claim, I think it seemed uh, clear that, that this is an issue that's purely a matter of law. Um, and so to the extent that this court, or the, the defendant is asking this court to remand this particular issue for an evidentiary hearing, um, I, I, I did not read anything that indicated that there's any factual issue at all here. You have the proffered testimony clear in the record, you have the actual te- testimony in front of the jury clear in the record, and you have defendants, appellate counsel filing an Anders brief. All three of those things are plain in the record. There doesn't appear to be any issues of fact. So even if there was some reason um, to remand this to the trial court, the trial court I think as a matter of law under our statutes could not hold an evidentiary hearing. There's only a legal issue here and so the trial court must under our statutes under uh, 1419, I think, or 1420, under 1420 must uh, decide the case as a matter of law. Uh, So unless there are any other questions uh, for the reasons stated in our brief and and just now, we ask that you affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals uh, and effectively affirm the decision of the MAR court in this case. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal?
1: Just very briefly. Um, Excuse me. Um, One thing I want to talk on is the idea that there might have been other convictions. I want to make sure I have not um, confused anybody. Um, As I said at length in the record in this appeal, there were two pretrial hearings that were never able to be produced by um, the, uh, they were not in the courthouse um, uh, box in the old storage room. Um, There had been pretrial, there was a motion to exclude certain convictions. We don't really know what those are. There was no order on that. Um, There may have been a couple older convictions that Mr. Walker could have been at risk um, for being impeached with. most of those were older than 10 years old, um, so those may have come in. But my point is that the, the reason I argue that there was little risk to him is because two of the very problematic ones involving assault against this same victim did come in. Um, so I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss, confuse uh, in any of the facts on that issue. Um, I'm not quite sure I understand why um, Mr. Walker testifying would have undermined his case. Um, There was no indication that Mr. Walker was ever going to deny what happened, um, or deny that this happened. I think he was going to deny, did he do it with premeditation, deliberation, and specific intent to kill? But there was nothing showing that um, some of the other witnesses who testified spoke to why he did what he did. You're still
3: saying, I think he would testify to you, and your friend says that's just not enough to even get you to the hearing. Right. Because if we don't know what the testimony actually is going to be, so what's your response
1: to that? I get, I think I am, I am too careful in my words. Mr. Walker in his affidavit says that he would be able to resolve the eyewitness testimony in this. The eyewitness testimony they was referring to when he said that was the uncle's testify. Whether he broke down the door, threatened her and shot her versus just came in, couldn't use the restroom and then shot her. To me, that indicates, uh, strongly indicates, that he would testify in line with what the uncle said. Um, So I'm not sure why him going on the stand and saying, I did what I did, um, showing remorse, saying I didn't intend to kill her, I didn't premeditate this, would somehow undermine, um, he was not going to be found not guilty. He was either going to be found guilty of first or second degree murder. So unless there are further questions, again, we ask this court to reverse the Court of Appeals and to remand to the trial court for an evidentiary hearing. Thank you.
0: You counsel? Thank you both.